This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. The government recently released independent reviewer Michelle Levy's final report into the quality of advice review. In this week's podcast, we discuss the recommendations and their potential impacts for financial advisors. Hello, I'm Sarah Conti, Senior Manager, Advice Technical and Regulatory for BT. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Brian Ashenden, Head of Financial Literacy and Advocacy for BT. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. The Minister for Financial Services, the Honourable Stephen Jones MP, recently released the highly anticipated 267-page final report into the Quality of Advice Review. The process undertaken by the review was thorough with broad industry consultation and very careful consideration given to all of the levers in our profession. The report puts forward 22 recommendations and it's fair to say if implemented will result in significant change for the industry as well as financial advisors. Brian, what are your initial call-outs from the final report? Well, first off, we have to recognise that whilst we have a report that contains those 22 recommendations, that's all we really have. We don't have an indication from the government on which recommendations that they'll look to progress and which ones they won't. In fact, the only comments from the government at this time are that they are looking to have an expert review of the report. They want to stress test its findings and then undertake further consultation. And whilst it might come as a surprise to some that we will have more consultation, it is actually important in this process. I mean, we want whatever recommendations are implemented to work and to work the first time. So getting those legislative settings and processes and so on correct up front gives the greatest chance of success when it is ultimately implemented. And then finally, looking at the recommendations, it's also clear that they are very much interconnected with some recommendations relying on others being implemented. And if they are going to be implemented in full, then I think it'll go a long way to helping make advice more accessible, more affordable, and importantly, without a loss in quality. Yeah. Brian, you mentioned many of the recommendations are designed to work together and not necessarily designed to be pulled apart. Um, That said, I'd like to take a look at the first recommendation, which recommends the definition of personal advice be broadened to capture all financial advice given to a client um, in a personal interaction or personalised communication by a provider who has information about a client's situation. Brian, given that broader definition potentially will capture more conversations, what are some of the challenges this expanded scope may create for advisors? Well, the first challenge is obviously what you've actually just said, that the definition of what is personal advice will be expanded, which means more interactions will fall within that definition, whether they are with a financial advisor or some other person. Now, We have to remember that there is still the need to have a recommendation or a statement of opinion about a product or a class of products or interest in in those products for there to be financial product advice in the first place. But generally, as soon as you meet that requirement, if you hold information about the client, then it's likely it'll be deemed to be personal advice. Now, while small things are captured, this is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, as was pointed out in the final report, most consumers probably think that if they go to see a professional financial advisor or an expert in the area, then what they're getting, however it's phrased, is personal advice. Now, 
as holding relevant information about a client is enough to push it into being personal advice and away from general advice, it will be important if this change does go through for advisors to carefully monitor some of their other activities, such as marketing or newsletters, um, to determine if they would move into the personal advice space due to some form of tailoring, such as personalising it to their client. Now, of course, again, this is, a, I think, a good example of the interconnectedness of the recommendations. As more interactions constituting personal advice can really only work with the removal of some of the existing cost constraints, such as the existing requirement to provide a statement of advice when personal advice is actually provided. Yeah. Recommendation four requires a person who provides personal advice to a retail client to provide good advice um, with good being fit for purpose and in all circumstances good. How is this likely to work in practice, Brian? Well, you know, whenever we have some form of measure to determine whether advice is right or not, there is always going to be some form of subjectivity. And the move to a good advice requirement still has this. Now, as was pointed out in the report, though, perhaps some of the focus is on the fact that it's generally easy to see when advice is not good or, or not good enough. So if we can't say that it falls into one of those two options, then perhaps the answer is it's therefore good advice. Now, but again, this is also a prime example of one of the focuses of the final recommendations and the final report, which is actually about moving away from a process or a focus on a process to develop the advice and moving towards a focus on the actual advice that's being delivered itself. And if you think about the existing best interest duty, and in particular, the seven safe harbor steps, it's very process focused. In other words, have I done all these things in, in developing the advice? The good advice requirement focus, however, is on whether the advice is good at the time that it is delivered. So whilst it still involves an element of subjectivity, it's probably a little bit less subjective than the best interest test. But for an advisor, you know, generally, I think you would expect that if you're providing advice today, that is in the best interest of your clients and in line with the code of ethics requirements, then this good advice threshold surely would already be met. So realistically, there's probably not much in the way of changes to what, as an advisor, you would do today. Yeah. Brian, you mentioned the best interest duty. So the report's also suggesting changes to this best interest duty, replacing that with a statutory um, best interest duty. How will the two differ? And under this, the, the new statutory duty, the safe harbour won't be included there. So how can advisors demonstrate um, that they've met their obligations? Well, first point of relevance here is that this proposed modified best interest duty uh, will only apply to relevant providers. Um, or in other words, as that's defined, an individual financial advisor who's subject to the professional standards regime. Uh, it doesn't apply to interfund advice from a superannuation trustee, uh, although it's still important to remember that the good advice requirement would apply in, in that sort of situation. Now, you know, as we were just talking about a moment ago, the existing best interest duty is focused on the processes to develop the advice recommendation. And this is where many advice firms have spent considerable time, considerable effort, you know, and obviously a considerable cost on developing their processes, arguably so they could defend a claim if one was to eventuate. Now, what has been proposed, however, is replacing the existing duty and the seven safe harbour steps with a statutory fiduciary duty, uh, 
which is about acting in the best interest of the client. Now, common law, this is about prioritizing the needs of the client over oneself, or if you like, it's that client-first principle. So, you know, it, again, I think it should be noted that the best interest duty requirement um, as a standard already exists within the Code of Ethics, uh, but the review expressed a concern that it could be easily changed by a ministerial declaration. So enshrining it in the Corporations Act will actually give it more force. But once again, as an advisor, you know, if you're meeting your obligations today um, under the Corporations Act you know, and obviously under the Code of Ethics as well, then you should feel confident that you'd actually meet this revised legislative definition if it is ultimately implemented. Many of the recommendations support advice being provided by those two categories that you mentioned, the relevant providers and some other providers, so whether it be digital offerings or trustees of super funds, for example. Can you explain the differing obligations for both? Well, the distinction is important, but I do also think that once you understand it, it it does start to make some sense. So the broader or larger set of requirements will apply to relevant providers or, as you say, you know, actual financial advisors themselves. They have the obligation to meet the best interest duty on top of that new good advice requirement. But importantly, they are also able to charge a client directly for their advice. And this is where there is a bit of a difference because a super trustee, as an example, if they want to charge for an advice offer, they need to be careful because if they were to charge it direct to the client's account, then the way that the proposals work, that advice might must actually be provided by a relevant provider or an actual financial advisor itself. So that extra layer of requirements for a financial advisor does also, though, come with the ability to provide more uh, and more holistic advice. Now, super trustees and other digital advice providers are somewhat constrained. Um, whether it be in how they charge um, or the breadth of advice that they can actually give. So, again, using the super trustees as an example, what's proposed, basically it's limited to the intrafund advice uh, as it is today, but with a slight broadening of considerations. For example, requirements to consider potential social security implications for a member as a result of whatever recommendations are made about that superannuation investment or that, that super fund. And this does start to get a little bit more difficult as it means moving outside of just considering the super investments um, and would need to be managed carefully to ensure there isn't any scope creep to it to any other areas. And because this is provided on behalf of the trustee by an employee, essentially, of, of that fund or employee of the trustee, um, you know, it was noted in the final report that this does potentially create some conflicts between you know, what's the duty of that employee to their advisor and their duty to the client. And so the absence of that fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of the client actually aids in overcoming this type of ethical dilemma. And, of course, we need to remember that we still have that requirement that the advice must be good, even where it comes from that super fund trustee. Yeah. The recently implemented ongoing fee arrangement legislation is also proposed to be simplified under the report's recommendations. The report supports continuing to obtain consent on an annual basis, but by using a single consent form with a slight deviation from the proposals paper where they, the report now recommends that the form be prescribed, 
Brian, what are, the, what are some of the challenges the industry has faced with this and what are the potential benefits of this simplified consent process? Yeah, well, I think no doubt the biggest benefit out of this recommendation would be the use of that prescribed form. Um, and importantly, as is also talked about in the report, a, a prescribed form that the product providers can actually then rely on. And, and that additional piece, I think, actually does away with a lot of the yanks that I know advisors face today with that potential need to complete a different annual consent form for each provider. You know, if, if there's that ability to rely on that single prescribed form, that takes a lot of that, those issues um, out of the way and off the table. And I know that there has been a lot of work undertaken um, within the industry to try and develop a consistent form, and, and that's been done amongst various product providers. And it hasn't been without some difficulty, given you know different providers have different fee models and so on, and trying to cater for that in one particular form does prove difficult. But I think at least perhaps that work that has been done to date on trying to develop that type of form, you know, hopefully it can actually be used to help speed up the implementation of this particular measure or this particular recommendation. Because really, I mean, I think implementing this can only be of benefit to everyone concerned. Yeah, certainly. Two areas, Brian, that respondents to the inquiry provided very vocal feedback on was the requirement to provide a statement of advice or a record record of advice where that's appropriate, as well as the provision of that financial services guide. So the report suggests some big changes in this space. Can you talk through these? Well, let's start with the financial services guide. And the recommendation is that the information contained within it could be made available on a website and clients directed to that. Um, you know, doing that, you know, I think quite simply can reduce cost, reduce time. And obviously, it's a, an easy way to make sure that the financial services guide is kept up to date itself. Um, regarding the, the statement of advice and the record of advice, um, it has been recommended to remove the requirement to provide these. Now, many advisors have commented that the cost and time to produce these documents is what adds to the cost of advice, and it's what pushes it out of the reach of many Australians. Now, whilst the recommendation is to to remove them, I I don't think this means the end of a document that summarises the recommendations itself. And the proposal does specifically say that the advisor needs to ask the client if they want something documented. But the removal of the prescriptive nature of these documents could actually allow for more innovative ways to provide and explain the advice. Advisors will still need to keep their appropriate records. Now, that's already a requirement on them under the Code of Ethics anyway. So, you know, the, the materials to support the advice that has been provided will still continue to exist as they do today. Um, but I do think this is, you know, the recommendation that really has the potential to open up access and uh, affordability of advice. You know, it sounds like a simple change, but, you know, it is one that could take some time. Still need to ensure that clients are aware of the various protections that are afforded to them under the legislation. And it may take some time for AFSLs to adjust their risk appetite to the provision of something different to the SOA, as an example, as we see it today. But I do think if you know we can all collectively work together on this and what it should look like, it really does feel like a huge opportunity that we that we really need to take advantage of. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? 
Brian, since the release of the final report, the Minister has stated that he intends to obtain expert analysis and to undertake stress testing of the recommendations before he then takes them to Federal Cabinet. Um, He's also said that he intends to consult widely on these recommendations. While we only have recommendations at this stage, what's the process from here? As you said, you know, these recommendations, the, the 22 of them, will be subject to further analysis and stress testing. And then we're going to have further consultation that will occur. And as, as I said earlier, I think that, you know, that's an important part of the process. Uh, it's just unfortunately at this time we don't know the timing um, on any of those aspects as yet. So it really is just a case of waiting to hear what the actual next formal steps are. But I think you know, in the interim, as a collective, we still need to make sure that we don't lose focus uh, on what these potential changes could be. You know, collectively, how do we discuss what the changes could be uh, and how do we work towards you know, how they can actually work for the better at the end of the day, making that advice um, more accessible and more affordable? You know, and that way, when the time comes for you know, the drafting of, of legislation and so on, uh, you know, we could have a unified voice across the industry for the right type of change. Yeah. Brian, thanks for your insights today. Not a problem. With the final recommendations now subject to expert analysis and stress testing, as well as further consultation, it may be some time before we see any significant changes. Now, remember, if you have any technical questions, you can contact the BT Technical Services team on 1800 or by email to technical at btfinancialgroup.com. And you can join us for our fortnightly BT Academy webinars where we discuss all things technical and regulatory in the advice space. Our next webinar scheduled for midday Australian Eastern Standard Time on 1 March will continue on the theme of today's discussion when Brian will be presenting the topic, Is It Back to the Future for Advice? where he'll spend some time exploring the recommendations and what they could mean for the future of advice delivery. To register for that session, head to www.bt.com.au forward slash professional and follow the links to the BT Academy webinar series. There, you can also view our previous webinars on demand and all sessions are accredited for CPD purposes. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye for now. BT Tech knows, and now you know. Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory, and industry news. This podcast is being developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations, or needs.